This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as Donald Trump's dietitian, and I'm proud to say he is taking my advice of only eating garbage. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today is my pleasure to have in the red chair Dave Eggers, the founder of McSweeney's and the author of so many books, including The Circle, and a memoir, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Everyone knows who David Eggers is. His most recent novel is called The Captain and the Glory, and it's about a noble ship captain by an ignorant, proud, cheeseburger-loving man with no experience who leads a gang of deplorable liars and thieves. Sounds familiar. For some reason, Dave, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. Good to see you. So everyone does know who you are, but why don't you go a little, talk a little bit about yourself, like where, what you've been doing in recent years. Obviously, McSweeney's is such an amazing thing, but you also run uh, a writing workshop uh, in, in San Francisco on Valencia Street. Um, talk a little bit about what you're up to right now. Well, yeah, 826 Valencia um, has been around 20, 30? 18 years now, yeah, 20 I guess. Years, 20, um, yeah. And uh, it's expanded now into the Tenderloin neighborhood and Mission Bay nearby from where we are right now. And, um, you know, that was it started out as a small neighborhood writing and tutoring center for especially kids who are uh, English language learners. And um, the need has just, you know, we knew that the need was there, but it continues to grow and... Um, and the demand is there, and so the executive director, Bita Nazarian, just keeps opening new centers and growing into new neighborhoods. And um, we find that that one-on-one attention for kids who are learning the language and also sort of trying to engender a love of writing and creativity with them, and that one-on-one sort of that's our special sauce, I guess, is attracting volunteers and putting them next to young people and that sort of electric combination between those two uh, yields pretty incredible results. Yeah, I want to talk about creativity, sort of in the modern age, a li- little later. And then you're also writing, obviously, and doing all kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, when there's, um, you know, the, I vacillating these days between, like, the satire, like a, the captain and the glory, and then I still, uh, you know, I'm still covering the Trump administration and, the effects of his immigration policies as a journalist. So I sort of toggled between those two sides, like trying to get at the towering absurdity of the moment and then at the same time going into the nuts and bolts of policy and its consequences. And so it's a weird uh, 
duality I think we're all living with. All right, well, talk about the second, which is covering what you've been covering, and then we'll get into the book. Well, the last time when the articles of impeachment were handed down, I went to Hershey, Pennsylvania, because mm-hmm. he had a rally that night. He did. So the day before, I visited a family that I've covered uh, a couple times that are living in a basement of a church in Richmond, Virginia, um, in Sanctuary, and they've been doing that for over a year now because uh, the mother is under a final order of deportation, and she's trying to wait out until there's some opportunity or if she gets real due process or there's uh, maybe a change in administration. So in the meantime, her children are growing up in a church basement. And um, This is th- from what country? She's from Honduras. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, if she goes back, she will... She expects to be killed by an ex-boyfriend uh, mm-hmm. uh, who has threatened her life. And so we used to have protections for such people, and um, those were removed by Jeff Sessions, and uh, she never got a day in court even. And so I talked to her on one day. The next day I go to Hershey, Pennsylvania to see Trump in his uh, favorite milieu, mm-hmm. you know, and— um, and to talk to Trump voters, which I always do and I always enjoy doing. And so you see this incredible punitive cruelty on the one hand, and then you talk to the people that vote, voted and continue to support him, and they're all deeply human, three-dimensional, reasonable people. But they often have a very narrow focus of uh, support or a narrow, narrow reasoning for having voted for him or, or voting for him mm-hmm. now. And so... I'm always sort of gratified or hopeful because there, I, I have yet to meet like a googly-eyed, fanatical, mm-hmm. unthinking kind of Trump zombie, you know? Usually right. they have reservations, they have things they don't like, um, but on balance they see that Trump is good for them in one mm-hmm. way or another. And especially right. in Pennsylvania these days, economically you can't deny that he's been good for— uh, his policies they see as having benefited the state. Right, so, right. All right. So you do that and, and report on this. And uh, conclusions that you've come to as we move into the next election cycle? Well, I'm, I'm hopeful because the last guy I interviewed, um, uh, he seemed like a dyed-in-the-wool kind of uh, just spouting all of the usual— uh, Make America great again. Well, and also Hillary's a, a crook, Hillary. and the Bidens are crooks, and on and on and on. And then deep into our conversation, he said that he had voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012, mm-hmm. worked for Obama in 2008 as a volunteer, and before that had liked Reagan. And so you see a sort of a pattern of like a lot of voters want this disruptor or somebody out of mm-hmm. nowhere. They don't trust career politicians in sure. any way. or right the uh, monarchical sort Mm -hmm. of families, I guess, the Clintons or the Bushes, because this guy also couldn't stand the Bushes. And Mm -hmm. so I came away always, and I always come away from these things thinking the electorate is more malleable than you think. Mm -hmm. And I could easily see this guy voting for Bernie, Mm -hmm. because he did did like Bernie. And um, so it's, it's so interesting, because I think the Democrats outthink themselves so often by mm-hmm. trying to come up with some scientific, mm-hmm. you know, uh, perfectly calculated uh, uh, approach to— uh, It's a very emotional decision. When it's an emotional decision for so many people, I don't think it should be. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a, a, a part of our miseducation as 
Americans is that we go for charisma or we go for emotion or we go for mm-hmm. some gut feeling when it really should be a more rational mm-hmm. calculation. Um, you know, how we do relationships. But go yeah. ahead. <laughs> well, exactly. It, it isn't a relationship. Yeah. We should be picking a president, picking a senator, uh-huh. picking a city council person the same way we choose an accountant. Sure. You know? reasonable sobriety. Right. Like, really, we want the most stable, yeah. most uh, intellectually nimble and reliable person. Instead, we always go for... The bad boyfriend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. How do we pick a bad boyfriend? <laughs> yeah, so... This time it'll be different. It's really weird. Uh-huh. Um, so what are you hoping to do through the journalism? You're trying to give people an insight into that concept? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for me... So often it's just for my own curiosity, too. I, I learn, I really only learn if I ask questions and listen to people. Mm-hmm. And so I read a lot, and then I don't see what I, what I find when I talk to people. I, I rarely see it reflected in the media that mm-hmm. I read, the subtleties. Well, talk about that a little bit, because, you know, the media is always beating itself how it covered Trump in the beginning, how it doesn't, you know, like how it yeah. covers now. Now it's going the opposite direction, it feels like. They're over-covering, you know, the fringe parts of our society. I think, I think sometimes some of the deep-dive journalism does get into— they've done a better job over time of, like, identifying all the— nuances of a Trump voter, for mm-hmm. example, and all the different... It's such a broad, diverse coalition, you'd be surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Um, and I think that every time I talk to somebody, there's a different reason mm-hmm. why they support him. Mm-hmm. And so I almost never hear the same thing from two different people, and I think that that's so important. And, the, and so I go out... And I just want to talk, and I just let people talk. I mean, I just want to listen, and I let them talk for a long time. Average interview is like 20 minutes sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's standing in the rain in the parking lot after a rally, for example. Mm -hmm. But we both come away with, I think, there's a real gratifying effect. There's a, you know, Dave Isay, the StoryCorps guy, says listening is an act of love, right? Mm -hmm. So after every interview, it's very kind of... uh, you feel like you've there's some bond that's been created, and even though I cannot stand their candidate, mm-hmm. I like them. Right. And we've had a discussion, and we've heard each other, and I've raised points and devil's advocate, and I say, what about this, and what about that, and they answer, and we come away really mm-hmm. agreeing on a lot. I right. think. Right. And so, um, so for my own kind of <laughs> therapeutic almost to go and to meet fellow Americans and try to sort of listen and understand them. And then there's always, like, such surprising things. I went to a rally in El Paso, and I thought this would be a bloodbath for Mm -hmm. Trump because he'd been insulting the city, calling it the most dangerous place, and it's also 80% Latino, this city. And and Beto O'Rourke was rallying across the street. He was, yeah. His rally was very small, Mm -hmm. maybe 3,000 people. Across the street, Trump's rally was about 15,000. And so that right there thought, um, made me doubt the uh, viability of Beto's mm-hmm. candidacy. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't being reported as such. Right. I looked for everywhere the next day, and nobody was reporting it the way I saw it. Right, which is, this guy is very popular here. Very popular, and a, a narrow... Or people ma- just wanted to see it. They just wanted to see it. The narrow majority of the crowd was Latino. It was more than 50% because mm-hmm. this is an overwhelmingly Latino city. And people wearing MAGA hats and people having various reasons, mostly economic, 
for supporting him. And I talked to all these people, and again, I came away thinking, A, people are much more complex than we give them credit for, the electorate. Mm -hmm. B, if he has this broad of a support, even if it's passive, these were not fanatical supporters across the board, but on balance, they saw the economic benefit of his policies. They had employment. Their um, 401ks were going up, all of that. So I came away very scared about 2020, thinking mm-hmm. if he can attract 15,000 people in El Paso after insulting it for weeks, he's going to be hard to beat. Mm-hmm. So is that where you've come away with so far? Yeah. Yeah, he's hard to beat, but I think that, you know, if the Democrats tell a better story mm-hmm. and offer realistic policies about continuing economic growth, continuing uh wage growth, which we're actually seeing now for the mm-hmm. first time in a long time, um, and not just focused on how crude and um, corrupt his administration is, but also working with the pocketbook issues. And um, then he's definitely beatable, but, um, but they, they have a lot of work to do, and it's not going to be about that he's a monster mm-hmm. or that he's a, a pig. or yeah, which we know. Which, which these know. things I truly believe, but I come away thinking like people are really, uh, sometimes they vote emotionally and stuff, but a lot of times they're saying, well, I have $2,800 more in my pocket right. this year than I did last year, which is one. The, I could put up with some piggery. They're not listening. They're, they're all pigs. They're rarely reading the tweets. Yeah. I yeah. never find anyone that's saying, yeah, I read the last. Yeah. It's not about that. People aren't paying close attention right. to every moment like we sometimes do in the media. Right, right. So. All right, so let's get into this book, and then in the next section we'll talk about it. But so this is a, the satire of, of a lot of things you're talking about, the captain and the glory. Yeah, I, you know, on the one hand, covering it journalistically sometimes seems too sane mm-hmm. compared to just how ludicrous it is. Mm-hmm. And so we are living in a cartoon that defies all belief mm-hmm. and is— uh, embarrassing, you know. Um, the president wears makeup, mm-hmm. you know, full body makeup, mm-hmm. and dyes his hair, and and I mean, all just on the very most superficial physical things. Yeah, it defies all. Yeah, any kind of the broadest comedy mm-hmm. would never pass muster, and like. Right. But then uh, we forget this for hours or days or weeks at a time because we do have, like, real consequences of these so many horrific policies, especially towards immigrants, minorities, and, uh, and the poor. And so, so I thought while I was working as a journalist on this side, I was sort of creating this alternate universe that instead of the government as it is and the president as he is, it all takes place on a cruise ship which is inherently comical, I think. Mm-hmm. And instead of a country of 320 million, it's a few thousand, you know, disparate peoples living on a ship that they are stuck together, but they stuck with each other, but they've chosen to be there and they've gotten along for generations and generations to some extent. And in, when the, the previous captain, who's sort of a combination of McCain and Obama in this book called The Admiral, he retires... And instead of choosing one of the many people on the ship who has captained a ship and knows how to, uh, uh, you know, sail, and uh, they choose the one person who has no interest, has never expressed any interest in even the sea, doesn't like boats, and he's just known as hanging out near the women's locker room looking for, uh, hoping to get a upskirt photo here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, They choose that guy. In part, just to sort of see what would happen. Right. And I think that, again, 
one of the many facets of our electorate is like that kind of weird subversive glee. Mm-hmm. The same way in high school you elect the, 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 the idiot, the one we guy that, that does not want the job. Yeah. That's what we did in college. Yeah, just to sort of see if, if you can the do it. The idiot party. All yeah. right, we're here. I'm going to talk more about his new book called The Captain of the Glory. We're here with Dave Eggers, who needs no introduction, obviously. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. We're here with well-known author and journalist Dave Eggers. He's the author of a new book called The Captain of the Glory. It's about, it sounds like um, Love Boat Gone. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. What, what, so I don't, you don't have to give away the plot, but you're I'm obviously basing this uh, on Trump, right? This, this was— Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, there's no way to satirize the time mm-hmm. by because setting it— Because it's so satirical. And, you know, yeah, you can't outdo what we see every day, but if you move the, the venue— and mm-hmm. you limit the cast a bit, so you set it. I set it in a, on a cruise ship, which has all kinds of comedic elements inherently, and they're, it's a ludicrous setting to begin with. Um, I've never been on a cruise, but from what I, I know, have. yeah, <laughs> I'm ludicrous. The photos and uh, I. Uh, so anyway, great I, soft serve ice cream. Well, there you go. Right, that's, I mean, that's really all you it's need. Worth the price. That, I know it's like thank God for this officer. I'd kill myself. Was otherwise. that your motivation for undertaking no, it? You've heard a lot about it. Disney. Yeah, I just I guess you have so. to do it at one point in your life. Yeah, so you know it's a silly setting. Um, it's broad. It's tacky. Mm-hmm. It's gaudy, and so I thought, well, that's sort of a perfect place for mm-hmm. this guy. Um, who wants to be captain suddenly for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They elect him captain out of this sort of gleeful sense of like, what Why if? Not? And this idea that anyone can be president, which is like mm-hmm. a real terrible idea mm-hmm. in so many ways that we misunderstand here. Mm-hmm. Tell and, me why it's a terrible idea because well, it seems like it's, that's what's happened. I guess it's like we misunderstand it. We, it's meant to be a democratic thing. Like if mm-hmm. you work at it, if you— no matter from whatever background, you can be born in a log cabin if you study the law and rise up through the ranks like Lincoln. And mm-hmm. So that's the aspirational. Then eventually you might be deemed worthy of this mm-hmm. high office that matters so much and impacts so many lives. Instead, here, we think it's anybody that's been on TV mm-hmm. can be president. And mm-hmm. so we, we uh, undervalue the office. We don't take our votes very seriously, I don't think. I think we have a lot of, like, uh, work to do to re-educate ourselves just about how serious an election is mm-hmm. and um, and how this there's a difference between, uh, like, a 
somebody who's been on television on a on a show about playing a rich guy, playing a rich guy, and um, having catchphrases mm-hmm. and the uh, work of governing. But we've conflated these two things for so long. Mm-hmm. Whether it's electing Reagan or Jesse Ventura or you name it, we we don't really see these as being two. Different tracks. What, what you, you just said something interesting because I've just been thinking about this a lot about voting. So a lot of the thing is blaming the voter for not voting or yeah. only thirty percent of people vote. That's always been the thing. Someone put it to me in the way that if it was a product and only thirty percent of people bought it, it means you have a shitty product. <laughs> Right? So why not make the product better? Why do, People are, are not voting because they don't feel like they have anything to vote for, and it's not a really good story. And so why should they? Uh, you um, know, I like Australia's mandatory for, voting, right. uh, actually. Well, that's I, another way to do yeah, it. Yeah. I think it's—I uh, think that, again, we don't educate ourselves well enough, and I think it starts from kindergarten on and family to family. I think we're so passive about it. And we are apathetic— <clears throat> in a way that's driven by prosperity. And we haven't, you know, we do have a very stable democracy. I do think we do. And so people take it for granted. And so often, especially in 2016, so many voters thought, well, it'll turn out okay. Hillary, I mean, the Hillary voters and the Democrats and all the people that chose either a third party or to sit out because they didn't like Hillary. I hope now they see the consequences of, of uh, you know, well, I don't want... Uh, uh, lemonade, and I don't want or soda, so I'm going to drink bleach. You mm-hmm. know, like or <laughs> it's like this very weird, yeah, calculus that I think people have been okay with, and maybe now they've woken up and but thought. But this like, book there is more comedic. It's like that. It's yeah. that, that it's not that it's funny. I tried to make it funny. Yeah, and I had a lot of fun Doesn't sound writing like you it. Think the real life is funny. Well, and then there's horror. I mean, yeah. you know, the the, the two are living in close proximity in the book, too. It's like I try to get at and heighten the comedy that we live with every day. At the same time, any time that somebody doesn't seem to belong on the ship and this growing list of enemies and undesirables are thrown overboard mm-hmm. or put in cages on on the deck to thwart any other refugees and uh, mm-hmm. other people from coming aboard from vulnerable vessels all over the ocean. And so, like a lot of satire, it has, like, comes from outrage. Mm -hmm. And I hope to sort of highlight the horrors that are actually so many people are living with in these last few years. Um, But at the same time, there's a catharsis in being able to laugh Mm -hmm. at at a lot of this. And especially laugh at, uh, you know, the... I give the captain a little bit of a a soul mm-hmm. here, and and he's painted as a kind of a very fragile and fearful guy who uh, spends most of his time under his bed, mm-hmm. um, where he feels most safe, and where he can listen to a voice in the vent who feeds him paranoid theories about everything mm-hmm. and comforts him and is just as scared of the world as he is. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that Trump has never shown courage in his life. I think he's a very fragile and very, um, very scared guy with just like a fear of so many things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that it's in a weird it's way. It's funny you voice that because I voice that to someone, oh, he's just awful. I'm like, no, this came from something. 
or maybe he's just born, some people are just born bad. They just are, and they just have no, you know, like the destruction of cultural artifacts, which he's done a million times. Like, what makes someone a real liar? What makes someone despicable? And I was like, I would love to figure out his parents. Like, I need to meet them. Like, they're dead. But something happened that was just, took a really troubled person to start with, genetically troubled or something, and twisted it in a way that, just it's it's fascinating and it's not just narcissistic personality disorder which is clearly in evidence here but not a doctor but I talk to enough people no I'm not a doctor but I play one on on (laughs) podcasts but there is much more complexity to it do you you worry about getting pushback from making someone who people many people love and other people really truly despise uh, palatable I guess no I think that we have to uh, I mean I just saw Jojo Rabbit you Mm -hmm. know where Hitler is an imaginary friend of a right. young brown shirt. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, there's never a disadvantage to trying to humanize anybody, any mm-hmm. monster. And in this way, he's not Trump. I mean, I don't know for sure that Trump um, spends his days under a bed listening to a voice in the van. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that this happens, um, but I, I wrote it my own way and tried to create like a parallel universe that might outlive this presidency. I'm hoping that the book still makes sense and still has a message um, when we get through this. And I think it does. I think that in a way it's, we're trying to, I was trying to examine like what happens when we don't take ourselves, don't take our country, don't take our ideals very seriously. And um, in this book, the, the supporters of the captain they call themselves the most foul because mm-hmm. somebody said, don't vote for the guy most foul. So they dress in chicken costumes or any kind of... There's a parallel there. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they gleefully, you know, uh, hold events for him and cheer him on and parade him around all while wearing uh, feathers and mm-hmm. stuff. And so there's a similarity there in that, you know, when I go to these rallies, um, they're silly. Mm-hmm. They are a little, it's like a cross between a circus, kind of a country music show, mm-hmm. um, a maybe high school sporting event, and then with a little bit of tinge of Im- imminent terror, mm-hmm. where something could really go wrong. Right. You light a match and something mm-hmm. could. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, individually, you meet people and they're all like, Right. People you'd trust to babysit your kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's just, like, a reasonableness. But together, I was looking at—I filmed one part of this rally when a young protester was being escorted out. Mm-hmm. And everything seemed kind of, like, very casual and just fine. People dancing to YMCA. There's mm-hmm. always a lot of village people music yeah. at yeah, these rallies. Yeah, that's always great. They love the gays until they want to hit them. And um, and then when she was escorted out, and they, they parade them all the way through the rally. Mm-hmm. They always do this. I don't know sure. why they can't take the closest door, it's but like they gladiator. don't. It's like gladiator. It's a little bit like a, you know, um, Roman... Of course uh, they do that. Christians to the lions kind right. of thing. And they, they walk her all the way out. And I remember in the moment thinking, okay, this is a little unsettling. But watching it after I filmed it was terrifying. And I remember showing my kids, and they uh-huh. were like, oh, my God, that's right. really... Because they're all yelling and yeah. booing, and they're, this young woman is being protected by Secret Service people who are have to really fend off people from... Didn't I can't say that they were going to hit or kick her necessarily, but... They've done it. But they have, and um, it's really weird. So 
it's such a bizarre mix mm -hmm. that you can tell I'm still wrapping my head yeah, around yeah. every one of these experiences. Yeah. So, um, but I think that at the core, I really do believe in the inherent decency of See, just about that, everybody. That's your problem, Dave. I do, but then <laughs> there are... You, there are real ways to activate deep-seated hatreds, resentments, and violence, and it uh, and we're, you know, as groups, much more impressionable, I think, than we want to be. And all it yeah. takes, all it would take, is like a few people to get going, and yeah. this young woman not to be protected, yeah. and something really bad. You, you could never have read happened. Lord of the Flies, my friend. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of this book. <laughs> this book I, uh, is very formative for Kara Swisher. Yeah, I was when I read that book, I was like, yes. That's exactly. This was your existence as a child? No, this is why I think people are like <laughs> I do. See, you're, an, you're a pessimistic optimist, and I'm an optimistic pessimist. Yeah, I guess so. You know what I mean? Which is interesting that you find that attractive. I just know exactly. I think we get. I think the the liberals get played by the right almost every day. Yeah, played, 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 like all the time. Well, for we, sure. Because we go, okay, everyone can't be that bad. I'm like, they actually can be that bad. I think that on mass, they can. We can do very bad things, but mm -hmm. I think so much of it is the three people inciting and activating the violence and then the 10,000 allowing it to happen. Allowing to happen. That's yeah. exactly right. So what are you trying to—it's interesting that, 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 that Trump and this whole concept uh, illuminates you so— it gets you so interested. Um, I what, felt what betrayed mm -hmm. because, again, we had eight years of Obama where mm -hmm. the same guys, the same people, like I said, this guy mm -hmm. voted for Obama. Right. And all throughout Michigan, I had friends that were canvassing. And mm -hmm. I always said they kept coming across households that had voted for Obama twice, and then they went mm -hmm. to Trump. Actually, they went to Bernie in between. Right. So I'm fascinated by that malleability of the of a uh, voter the that can really sort of just swing so far right and left. And we do have a weird bipolar kind of thing that happens. We go from Bush to Obama mm -hmm. to Trump. Like, it shows—we look— like we're insane mm -hmm. as, a, as a people because mm -hmm. how can the same people, you know, tolerate or live with just these polar opposites? But Trump is different. I don't—if Mitt Romney was elected, this I would not be so confused and so mm -hmm. feel so betrayed because he's a rational person, mm -hmm. you know, that would bring dignity to the office. And I have no problem with uh, the fact that we do live in a country where there's more than one party. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to recognize that. And uh, But this was different. I just felt like it, uh, it was such a debasement of what I think is a very uh, admirable, flawed, but, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, you know, one of the best democracies the world has seen. And I'm, like, corny about that. Yeah, you are, yeah. But when somebody's ready to—when the voters are ready to throw it away, mm -hmm. um, it made me really feel— hurt, betrayed, outraged, mm -hmm. and also just confused. Well, it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, I, when you talk that, I'm thinking Salem witch trials, women not getting to vote, civil rights era, Joe McCarthy. Like, those are yeah. the things I tend to focus on. It's like, well, that is not the exception necessarily. Well, it's like Churchill, you know, saying mm -hmm. this is the worst form of government. Right, I get that. Except I get that. for every other one. So, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about that concept of where we are now, you know, in terms of finding that better nature of us. And you spent a lot of time talking about creativity and 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 bringing out the the best in people in terms of how to get people more creative. And I'd like to finish up in our next section about talking about, you wrote The Circle and stuff, and about the impact of social media and everything else on our culture. Because I do think there is, it's, 
it's been the key that's unlocked a little bit of what you're talking about. So when we get back, we're going to talk about that. We're here with Dave Eggers, uh, the author of The Captain and the Glory, and obviously a well-known writer and uh, journalist. When we get back, we're going to talk about that and more. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Dave Eggers, the author of The Captain and the Glory. It's his latest book about a noble ship captain by an ignorant, proud, cheeseburger-loving man with no experience who leads a gang of deplorable liars and thieves um, who are called most foul. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, Which is obviously Donald Trump. So talk a little bit about what the impact is. One of the things that, that, that is part of Trump is the use of social media, the, the intense use of social media. Now, you said no one looks at Twitter, but he use, he does, and he uses it quite effectively. Yeah. Well, I was— I Either was, he's trying to, to trigger liberals and the press or whatever he's doing with it, it, but it's certainly been effective. I don't think there's any strategy at all. I think he's been using it, you know, for since the beginning mm-hmm. as, a, as a direct line to his id. Mm-hmm. And— um, and, you know, what I was saying, the voters that I talk to almost never mention Twitter. And when mm-hmm. I ask them about it, they're not keeping up with what he's they saying. They know he says awful things. They know he says awful things. They don't take it seriously. And then they always say, well, all politicians lie. Yes. That's just the— My mother just said that the other —blanket uh, assumption. And so—but, you know, they used to say when Obama was elected, always oh, the first Internet president. Not at all. Not even. Trump is the embodiment the of all of— you know, uh, from poor spelling <laughs> to uh, sending messages without thinking to bullying to uh, spreading uh, lies, hatred, conspiracy theories, all of the worst aspects of social media and the Internet he's embodying. He, and so in a way, you know, uh, they were uh, match made in heaven. Like mm-hmm. there's never been a, a more... Just like Kennedy uh, was making possible, yeah, his presidency through television, maybe. Um, Roosevelt with radio. Roosevelt with radio. Or Churchill. Trump has, is the uh, the master of this medium. It, it, in a way, if he was any more sober, or if he in any way said anything expected or presidential through that medium, people would stop paying attention. Mm-hmm. But because it's outrageous every time, or nearly every time. That's why he has everybody riveted. And at every one of these rallies, everything he says is almost unscripted. Mm-hmm. And it is riveting. You cannot stop listening. And eh, for the first maybe 30, 40 minutes, it's like it's a show. It's an Andrew Dice Clay comedy mm-hmm. show from 1983. Then once he starts reading from the notes, who he's supposed to thank or whatever, people start leaving. They'll leave in the middle of the rally every time. Mm-hmm. And they stop paying attention. They sit down. They're like looking at their watches because now he's a politician. Yeah, you know. So, I'm. I was for, and I've always been for uh, banning him from Twitter. You know, Mm -hmm. I wish that they would do that. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. Why are you for banning that? Um, I just for I think the sanity of the nation and the debasement of our democracy. I think Mm -hmm. it's worth the risk Mm -hmm. of. 
and I do think he has violated every one of their terms that I've mm-hmm. read. He has violated. They've made an he exception gave for him. Newsworthy. I know. They make the exception, and I, you know, definitely, it's a debate to be had, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but I think that everyone associated with Twitter, if they were to ban him, they would win the Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. I think, like instantly. Mm-hmm. Because, They're never going to do it. Because the, the world would be improved. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, this is also a misunderstanding of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. You are not allowed mm-hmm. to incite violence. No. And you are not allowed, you are not, it's not a constitutionally protected speech to spread hate and to subtly, um, you know, endorse uh, uh, policies and, and, and beliefs that will incite violence. And so um, it's, a, it's a definitely the broadest possible interpretation of free speech, and it's also— uh, so talk about that a little bit. You wrote a famous book, The Circle, which sort of cast these people. How do you look on it now, years later? It was kind of prescient in a lot of ways. Although you, I think the the, the one thing I would go with is what you saw as malevolent to me was just stupidity, like or not the lack of consequence or lack of ability to understand consequence. Well, you know, what I was trying to get across with that was that um, I never saw, and I still don't see, a top-down malevolence mm-hmm. expressed by any of these companies. I right. really don't think that there's some master plan. Because you're in the Bay Area, a different viewpoint of them. Yeah, I mean, I grew from... up with so many people that are now part of that. That are part of that. Every other person I know works at one of these companies. Mm-hmm. I just think that collectively, you have a lot of idealistic, very smart, nice people who collectively, passively look the other way about the consequences of these machines that they've built and the, and the technology. And I think that in the aggregate, it's dehumanizing. In the aggregate, it is generally a net loss for humanity. I think that, uh, but I'm, you know, the, the main thing I was trying to get across was that every one of the worst ideas is coming from a 23-year-old new engineer. It's Mm -hmm. not all like Mark Zuckerberg thinking Mm -hmm. of like the next worst idea. I think that generally people have an ever-eroding sense of the importance of privacy and ever-eroding interest in truth as a a basic good Mm -hmm. that needs to be nurtured, protected, given space to to flourish and... and, uh, and I think that uh, we have to, as a culture, I think, you know, the new Privacy Act is a good move. Mm-hmm. I think all In regulation California. needs to be uh, uh, valued as, a, as an inherent good. I think mm-hmm. that, we, that we, they do need almost a cabinet-level official, mm-hmm. you know, like they, yeah. for every other major industry. There needs to be a growing tech ethics field, you know, mm-hmm. in the same way there is Design in the ethics, medical especially. field and legal field, all of these mm-hmm. things. And, um, but I do think, in general, it's not completely fixable, but I do think that um, it's not uns... It's How would you write the circle today? What, what would it be? Uh, what did you get I've right there and wrong? i taking notes about things, right. whatever's next. What did you get right there and wrong? What would you, how do you, when you look back at it? You got a, you got a very interesting reception all over. The book, Better Than the Movie. Yeah, I am... Um, a lot of what I thought was almost impossible came about within months of the yes, book coming out. Yes, hundred percent. But I, but I had a feeling. I, I, I think in general things are only trending one way, mm-hmm. which is that we are going to, we are living in a panopticon. We are have no 
great word. Um, it's a great word, it's isn't it? It's a great it? word. Most people don't care that much about being observed 24-7 and being... Mm-hmm. The fact that everybody has one of these devices in their homes that's record- sure. <laughs> recording their voices mm-hmm. and is being listened to other humans. Do you have a flip phone? I, I have a flip phone. That's great. Why um, is that? Because you uh, don't want to be tracked. Well, not just that. There's nothing about the smartphone that uh, holds inherent appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I guess I came of age during the flip phone, and mm-hmm. I'm an old dog, and those are new tricks. But also, whenever I have borrowed one, it is so insanely addictive and mm-hmm. distracting that and after an hour, I feel stupider. Mm-hmm. And so... I think it's to protect myself from right, an right, addictive you thing. Would love it, yeah. It's the same reason why I don't, um, I guess... Uh, Live in a cocaine palace. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. You said it much better. I was thinking about how to say this uh, tastefully. But, you know... Palace made oh cocaine. Yeah. But I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was concerned with the consolidation of power, mm-hmm. the uh, our tolerance for uh, self-surveillance. But I also think, generally speaking, we are the problem. Mm-hmm. I looked this up, and there actually is no law that says you have to have a Facebook account. I mm-hmm. looked it, looked for it. <laughs> there's no law that says you have to have a smartphone. Yeah. Uh, there's no law about any of this. You right. actually can opt out for the most well, part. it's kind of like clothing. Like, actually, well, not San Francisco, but, you know, like people just do it. Like, it's more it's more practice than it is I don't know law. if anything has ever—I mean, maybe smoking is, this, is the equivalent where everybody has this incredible love-hate relationship with mm-hmm. it. Um, and every—no one I— Every I interview high schoolers all mm-hmm. the time. Right. And two really interesting things happen. One, I say, how many of you are have a really balanced relationship with your phone and social mm-hmm. media? Nobody says yes. Everybody's conflicted. Everybody mm-hmm. is filled with self-loathing mm-hmm. and conflict, and they're trying to use it less and all that. But then I say, well, how many of you use Facebook? And the last time I asked this, about 200 high schoolers, three of the 200 yeah, they use don't Facebook. Like Facebook. It's changing really quickly, mm-hmm. and they're not posting everything to a no, huge group of people. No, but they use Instagram. People. They I use Instagram. But now that it's called Instagram by Facebook, my son quit it. Right. It was fascinating. It was really the branding but I, reminded him. It's 98% Snapchat mm-hmm. from what I can tell yes, and it WhatsApp. Is. And yeah. they're sending personal messages to yep. each other, or they're doing the, the streaks where they mm-hmm. do the little quick yep. photo. Um, it isn't... I'm going to post everything about my life forever for all mm-hmm. to see and get and get all my news through that same mm-hmm. feed. It's drastically different. I don't know what Facebook's future business model looks like. Yeah. Because once you have— Copying Snapchat. I was with Evan Spiegel last night, of all people, yeah. and I said, you are the chief product officer of Facebook, you know, in, in public. And he laughed because it's true. It's, they'll just steal his ideas, his next idea or whatever. Could be. I mean, but the revenue, if you look at Facebook's revenue split, mm-hmm. Snapchat and— and mm-hmm. uh, Instagram is a fraction. Well, it's an inevitably smaller business because it's not taking advantage of people's data and yeah. treating us like fodder. It's harder. I don't know how they're going to Well, they can't. The it's revenue. inevitably small. It's like running yeah. a small magazine like McSweeney's versus Fox News. Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You wouldn't want to be Fox News. Yeah. But you're going to make more money over there. Well, I'm encouraged, though, by the teenagers yes, now. Yes, they're still using it as a product they love. And, you know, but I'm encouraged, like, they have a little bit of a different approach to privacy. They grew up with their parents posting embarrassing photos Charity. of them that their, that their mailman or whatever mm-hmm. can read. And they right. thought this is horrifying. Like, why does mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the grocer and uh, 
grandma and everybody have to see the same photos of me mm-hmm. um, in the bathtub or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they, now it's just, you know, I'm going to, it's the same way almost like we grew up talking on the phone. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to send messages to my friend and, mm-hmm. and then they disappear. So maybe that, you know, trial by fire, they went through all of this sort of anti-privacy time. Maybe mm-hmm. they have a what, different what approach to it. What would you write today about technology? What is your interest? Um, I'm interested in the seeding of control and decision-making to AI. Mm-hmm. And here's the scariest thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been seeing this, but um, I have kids, and I work with young people at 826 Valencia, and um, we talk about their writing. It's mostly about mm-hmm. empowering young people through the written word. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, a lot of the exit exams, whatever grade, fifth, eighth, mm-hmm. high school, in public schools, they write their essays on the computer. These are increasingly graded by AI. Mm-hmm. So even these companies admit that their, you know, their algorithms, they can't read. Computers cannot read, and, and mm-hmm. they don't know content. They're scanning for keywords. Right. So kids can game this and write just gibberish. Mm-hmm. And the more $10 words you use, the higher grades you get. Mm-hmm. So I plug in well-known essays into mm-hmm. these algorithms to see how they score. Sure. Orwell's Politics in the English Language Great. scored like a three out of six. <laughs> Obama, maybe four out of six. And then if I just put in, but I can game it. I'll take one of these essays, and I just keep adding bigger, you put bigger words. Gettysburg Address in? One Gettysburg great... Address is a little short. Yeah. Um, but because the language is simple, yeah. it scores low. Yeah. But then if I add a bunch of... Words. Silly, nonsensical, large words, every time I get a little bit higher score until mm-hmm. I can get six out of six. But this is because it's... To some extent, it's cheaper mm-hmm. to have these, uh, sure. but not that much cheaper. Mm-hmm. In some cases, these companies are taking the school districts for a ride, you know. Um, but it seems cheaper, it seems easier, it seems quicker, and of course, expediency it will always win. Right. And it also seems more infallible. We cannot stand the complexity and the seeming fallibility of our fellow humans. Right. So we always want to seed any important decisions to what seems to be a more objective and infallible system, which are... In some cases, they are. If they're reading a mathematical thing or if there's a pattern or if there's... Maybe. Yeah. I think it's all utterly terrifying Mm -hmm. because more and more, whether it's getting a bank loan, because that's AI and stuff, whether increasingly it's going to be dehumanizing, it's going to victimize the most vulnerable... Mm -hmm. And data from your zip code, where you're born, to your test where scores. Where you where your location is, and where we, you linger. And we think that uh, the Chinese social credit score is some crazy uh, science fictional thing that would never be here. We're living generally in this zone already. Absolutely. With credit scores Just that, that we, we live with. We serve it up. Well, so do the Chinese. We serve it up even more so. Yeah, and so— I call us cheap dates. You may borrow that. We're cheap dates still. We get a map, and we get a communication system, and we get whatever. Map, mostly, is for me. I like maps, yeah. right? Um, and then we trade all our information for that. <laughs> which just your cheap date. You're just like, well, you give it sure. all up. And they may get all the economic benefit from your data. You get the map. Yeah, so, like, real cheap. Like, you got you took a hamburger versus the steak you deserved or whatever. And I think that that's even less dangerous than the, the thing I'm always most worried about is, mm-hmm. like, how does this affect our actual ability to move through the world and avail ourselves of opportunities? Mm-hmm. 
And when we are limited by... plugged into something. Yeah, but also if the data, if like a credit score says we, we can buy a house or cannot buy a house, or that we can go to a school or we can't, or that we pass uh, our eighth grade or we don't, and we have, it's unanswerable, we cannot debate it, we can't mm-hmm. reason with it, uh, it's, it's final. You must be a plumber. And that the humans that empower these decisions are saying, listen, I can't do anything. The number's the number. Mm-hmm. That's when we as a species end. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're no longer human. We have ceded all of our control mm-hmm. to deeply flawed, deep, often incredibly cheaply and uh, lazily engineered algorithms. Right. Like this uh, writing software. It's, right. just, it's terrible so software. So let me finish on this question then. If you yeah. could finish up talking about this. is What is human creativity then? Because a lot of people feel that the only thing that can beat back AI and the jobs that it will replace and the way that will, it will formulate you as a person is creativity. Yeah. How do you have this book here, you, which is beautiful. It's called Unnecessarily Beautiful Spaces for Young Minds on Fire. And it's this really uh, about A26 Valencia and other centers like it and how uh, these beautiful places where people create and what they create. Um, all about human creativity. Yeah. You know, we started A26 in the Mission District here, and it had a, a zoning obligation that we had to meet. So mm-hmm. we had to sell something in the front of the store. Mm-hmm. So we chose pirate supplies, of course. Mm-hmm. And then other centers around the world started popping up. They would come visit, and then they would go back to Austria or go back to Melbourne, and then they would have their own goofy, mm-hmm. weird uh, storefronts or themes. So this book kind of collects photos and mm-hmm. uh, how-tos from all of these places mm-hmm. because we do have to have these safe havens for young people to feel heard, to be weird, to be free a little bit from screens and free from algorithms a little bit, and to write and to have a human next to them that's listening to them and really probing their ideas and validating them. And a lot of it has to do with creating these very unnecessarily strange places. They're all weird, mm-hmm. like the one that we're looking at there yeah. looks like the interior of it's a whale. A whale, it does. It's great. It's and but sometimes it's to say, because I think increasingly we have, you know, here we're sitting here in an incredibly minimal, depressing box, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, we're we designed that for you. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of new architecture, school architecture, sometimes is like incredibly reductive mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, minimal. Mm-hmm. And I don't think kids respond to this. I think that they are inherently lush. weird. They're looking for lush and creative and, you know, ornate and weird and, um, Irrational and goofy and whimsical and so interestingly, humor. not in the movies and television these days. I find TV and movies very ornate. Like The Watchmen is so beautiful. Yeah. Or I was just watching a a, a, a trailer for Doctor Doolittle. It looks yeah beautiful. Yeah, because I think kids are attracted it's messy. to that. And kind I was noticing of, how messy his house is yeah. and how many. Like I was looking at everything on the walls, which was really. I interesting. think that I, this gets into even mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. the materials. Mm-hmm. Kids actually know the difference between cinder blocks and rich woods and mm-hmm. velvets and unnecessarily delicate materials around them and. 
and beautiful, beautifully made things that have a human characteristic to them. So are you, are you uh, when you think about, you know, keeping human creativity, what do you think needs, to, we have to think about, you know, I have a big tech audience. What is, you know, you're right, everything is an algorithm, everything's minimalistic. Uh, we're Marie condoing ourselves out of existence kind of thing. What, I think how, we have to create a little bit of a separation sometimes. I think that we, there is not a technological solution to everything. Mm-hmm. And when we say creativity, it doesn't mean how do we create an app mm-hmm. that makes you creative. Right. But I think a lot of people automatically think yeah, that way. Like, right. okay, yeah. <laughs> what kind of an <laughs> app or how do we transfer this wonderful, organic, real-life experience onto a screen? And I think that that... Uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction that we've seen in the last 25 years is really weird to me. And I started here in 1992 in South Park. Like, Mm -hmm. I saw all of this come up around me. And that part of it I didn't see coming. The sort of the everything has to be channeled one way and all mediated through a screen. I did not see that coming. I saw them having parallel, permanently parallel existences. But um, we do have to see that school can be free of at least somewhat free of every minute prevalence of technology. We, you know, we can have, we can cordon off spaces and say, you know what, technology is so good in so many different ways, right? right. And so valuable. We're using it. I'm using it. But it doesn't have to be, doesn't, everything that we do does not have to be mediated through our machines. And I think that uh, the, having these safe havens that are just mm-hmm. purely organic, wood, copper, brass, uh, messy paper, pens, all of these things that we inherently feel some connection to, mm-hmm. you know, because we're still animals, mm-hmm. you know? Like, we, we're we always going to seek out these sort of weird feral comforts mm-hmm. of, like, other organic Fleece, things. softness. Fle- <laughs> you know, um... Fur, you know. I mean, all, whatever it is, we are I, I we are saying, animals. I just I was I'll finish, we'll finish up in a minute, but I just had a baby, and every single thing babies get to lie on is stuff I wish I could lie on all yeah. the time. Like, why am I not lying on? They this get song? it. Like, I, I, literally, every pad, every piece of clothing is. I'm like, why aren't I living in this beautiful, soft environment? Almost always. I mean, at least my baby. Not every child child gets. I think if we got a pleasure of this. We should be happy to be human, Yeah, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of good things about being a human being. We don't have to move ourselves toward, uh, uh, we don't have to roboticize ourselves heedlessly. I think we can sort I, of let say. Let me get back at finishing up. Yeah. Donald Trump is very human. There you go. He uh, is. I guess that, yeah. He that, really is. That really is a... Uh, you just killed my point there. Yeah, I was <laughs> I'm gonna saying end that on we're that pretty team. good as humans, he but is, not though. always. Oh, is he human? Yeah. Anyway, he's just a different kind of human. Anyway, Dave, thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, everybody read uh, The Captain and the Glory. It's Dave's next book. I'm looking forward to his next book that focuses on tech and AI. Um, uh, but uh, whatever you write, I read everything you do right. Anyway, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Dave, where can people find you online? Not on your phone. Not on your phone. But uh, we, the McSweeney's website, Mc is, that's probably, I don't By have the way, any your, social media. Your thing on, uh, that you did with um, the privacy group was amazing. That, yeah, that the end of trust. End of trust was, yeah. st- I had them on the show talking about yeah. it. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, that just came from a phrase I thought of, and then yeah. Claire Boyle, the editor, took it yeah. from there with, uh, you know, the, the frontier. Uh, Nailed it. Yeah. That was amazing. They're doing a lot of these really interesting uh, collaborations like that. You should do more of those. We have a new one with the NRDC about mm-hmm. environmental fiction, right. sort of envisioning 
understanding what's coming next because of climate change. Fantastic. That's yeah. something you should pay attention to. I love all those things. You really are on a lot more cutting edge than you realize. Um, so where can people find you on? At Valencia 826? 826 Valencia, yeah. 826 yeah. National, mm-hmm. the International Alliance of Youth Writing Centers. And then McSweeney's, I guess, in Voice of Witness. Are you on Twitter now? No. I have never tweeted, although I've been, people uh, pretend to be me. Oh, uh, really? A lot, yeah. All right. Well, follow those people who pretend to be. No, no, no. Anyway, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.